We are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. So this morning, we transition to the second half of the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions we saw were concerned with God and God's glory. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, all of that on earth as it is in heaven. Today, this morning, with the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, we turn to our needs and to our concerns. So, you know, we talk a lot here about order and proportion. First things first, second things second, big things big, little things little. First order things central, second order things peripheral, all of that. Order and proportion. It's the key to Christian maturity. Otherwise, we'll be malformed. And the Lord's Prayer shapes us in this order and proportion. Right? God and his glory first. Not only first, but second and third in the prayer. And then we address our needs. Right? But it's important to state here that we do, in fact, address our needs. Of course, it's true that a lot of praying can seem obsessed with our needs and very little concerned with God, his name, his glory. Right? Nevertheless, in their place, the concerns that we have as creatures, these are legitimate subjects for prayer. So it may sound obvious, but it's important to state it, right? Our concern with God, chief and supremely, right, never obliterates our concrete, practical, human situation. It is possible to be overly spiritual. And this petition is something of a safeguard against that. Give us this day our daily bread. So with that, we're going to make four points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Um, The practical, the posture, the portion, the prospect. So the first thing I want to look at here is the practical. Many of the early fathers of the church did, in fact, display a kind of over- or hyper-spirituality when it came to this petition. In part because there's a unique Greek word that's translated daily bread in your Bibles. In part because of that, they thought that Jesus must be talking here about the Eucharist or about spiritual bread. For Jesus wouldn't put our basic bodily needs right after his glory. I mean, after all, every other petition in the Lord's Prayer is about spiritual realities. But the fathers are wrong here. Or they're at least half wrong. It's part of the wondrous glory of the Lord's Prayer that in its brevity and its economy and its condensed form, it's so comprehensive. It shows us, this prayer, God's concern for great things and for small little things, for spiritual things, for material things, for inner things, for outer things, for eternal things, for temporal things, for heavenly things, for earthly things. So the petition is important because it establishes that God cares about the details 
or the basics of our life, down to its sustenance. He cares about that. That he who is the transcendent father in heaven condescends to look out for and to watch after his children. All the way down, right from the hair of our heads to the falling of sparrows to the lilies of the field, God shows intimate concern with the trivial bodily necessities of our lives. And it's comprehensive care and concern. Daily bread here should be taken as a part which stands in for the whole. So that is under the heading of daily bread, this is a petition which embraces all the temporal needs, all the blessings of life. So for example, Martin Luther saw bread as a symbol for, as he put it, quote, everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, peace. Right? The prayer touches the whole temporal order. In fact, it turns out that these things, of course, are not so little. And they're not so inconsequential after all. Right? For if, if you know, we're embodied creatures, and if one suffers from hunger or malnutrition or homelessness or the violence of war, right, the effects of that don't remain in some physical compartment of your life without spilling over into your soul. So these things, these temporal things, are not so little or inconsequential. In fact, Jesus will judge us on how well we do at being his instruments to provide these basic temporal bodily needs for the poor. So, these practical outward needs of the temporal order, they cannot be denigrated. They are of great concern to our Father. So much so that they are the first thing we pray for. Isn't that remarkable? I think we might, by our our instincts, after we prayed for God and his glory, there, there might be 20 or 30 things we might think instinctively to pray for before we pray for our daily bread. But this is the first thing that we pray for after we've attended to his name, his kingdom, and his will. So that's the practical. The second point here is the posture. And by this I mean that there is here in this petition an attitude that we are to cultivate toward God and toward life under God. And we must adopt this attitude. And this attitude has a kind of deep backdrop, a theological backdrop. And you can see it very vividly in our larger catechism. The larger catechism question and answer on this petition is question 193. The answer, you know, if you ask what do we pray for when we pray for our daily bread, in the catechism, the answer, before it actually says what we pray for, gives a kind of preface, a kind of backdrop, You know, something like this, acknowledging X, Y, and Z, we pray for this. So here's what we acknowledge, even before we pray this petition. These are the words, again, of the larger catechism. Acknowledging that in Adam and by our own sin, we have forfeited our right 
to all the outward blessings of this life and deserve to be wholly deprived of them by God and to have them cursed to us in the use of them and that neither they of themselves are able to sustain us nor are we to merit or by our own industry procure them. But rather we are prone to desire, get, and use them unlawfully. Colon, we then pray. Does anyone take that posture in praying this petition? We are so blind and puffed up, so self-sufficient, Such conceited, arrogant puffs of smoke. We're not even aware of our absence of our sense of unworthiness. As if we are owed bread. That's the kind of hubris we walk around with. As if we are owed bread. In fact, it's even worse than that, right? Because most of us don't even ask for daily bread. We might pray over the food when it comes... But we're not actually asking for the food. We expect the food. There's nothing like this acknowledgement preface. So this supplication places us in a posture of humility. Right? This is the spirit of people who say, we need you, O Lord, moment by moment, breath by breath, even for our daily bread. So again, it's the ethos. Remember, the Lord's Prayer is nestled into the Beatitudes and into the Sermon on the Mount. So it's the ethos, the spirit of the Beatitudes, which is on display even here. Frankly, profoundly so here. Right? This is not the prayer of the complacent and the self-satisfied. This is the prayer of the humble and the lowly and the broken and the desperate and the meek who will inherit the earth. But I suspect that we don't petition God for our daily bread because we're already filled. Right? We're not hungry. We're rich. We're not poor. We already have, we have pantries for crying out loud. We already have weeks worth of food on hand. What day would we have to ask God for? Dear Lord, please provide day 57 because I've got the next 56 already in hand. And so we know nothing of this sort of desperate daily petition. Right? This is the cry. This is what I mean by posture, right? It's the, it's the posture, the stance of the poor in spirit and of the actual poor. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. So it's a petition of those who grasp that we are upheld in being. We are sustained in existence in our very bodily estate by the goodness and the power and the provision of God, right? In him we live. In him we move. In him we have our being. Right? So that means all things then, right? From rain to, to raiment. They all come to us from his open hand. We saw that in the, in the call to worship from Psalm 104. All that we have, even the stuff in the pantry, stored up in advance. We continue to have it and hold it at his good pleasure. Remember David praying this wonderful prayer where he says, Oh Lord, everything comes from you. And we have only given back to you what we've received from your hand. Right? This is the posture. 
Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul here in in, uh, 1 Corinthians, where he says, For who makes you to differ? For what do you have that you haven't received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Right? It's deeply unbecoming of us to, to receive our food and eat the way we do without this ethos as creatures. From him, through him, and unto him are all things. And we are prone to forget this. I mean, we all know it, of course, but we don't know it in a kind of DNA instinctive way. Now, maybe it's because, in part, we work hard for what we have. And, of course, the need to labor, the means of labor, they're they're not erased by this petition at all. God uses ordinary means, human labor, human planning, human intuition, distribution channels, all of that. He uses all of it to provide you with your daily bread, with all your temporal necessities. We tend to not see this, right? There's 10 million miracles that have already happened by the time you're done with your shower in the morning. But, you know, the the luster of it all has been rubbed off our eyes. And for us, it becomes like routine or expected. So God has made the world a place that yields food and all these other marvels that we often become numb to. Children are, of course, much better at this than we are. But as you grow older, you tend to lose your sense of awe, and it gets placed with routine. And then when the routine gets disturbed, you get upset. And so we come, we've come to speak of food in economic terms, or production terms. And we tend to see all the goods we enjoy, you know, as in mechanical terms, as if they just arise, as if the world is just crammed with stuff. Right? As if food sprouting out of the ground is not an astonishing wonder. Right? I don't know about you, but if just one peach is enough to make me believe in God. These are undeserved bounties. But we live as if all these things are the result of nothing but human labor. Right? I mean, that's how we tend to collapse it down to. Well, I went to this store and I picked up this and it was on sale and their distributor put it there and we drove it home, right? We just stay on this sort of horizontal plane in thinking about these things. Nothing but human labor. But who made the human? Who upholds the human in being? Who gave the human a mind? Who made that mind to grasp and be in sync with the external world? Like the most magnificent things are the most obvious and plain things to us. It's an astonishing thing that we, that, that we just are and are in sync with the external world, that it reacts to us. Who gives us life and breath? Who sustains the natural order? And on and on. So this very petition, simple as it is, if you pray it thoughtfully, it allows you to see life afresh. 
To see God as the source of all life and the author of every good gift. So, to put this a little differently, the prayer instills a posture of deep daily dependence. Deep daily dependence. It's important to see this. Like We are not manufacturing this sense of dependence. right? It's been scoured away by our prosperity and our ease. We are just trying to restore this sense of reality when we pray this prayer. We are being reminded that we're creatures, frail, flickering creatures. That we're asking for alms, give us this day our daily bread. That we are beggars, dependent, joyfully dependent safely and securely dependent on the royal bounty of God. Not only dependence, but there's two things that flow from dependence. The first one is gratitude. In the posture of a receiver, like an open-handed, non-clingy, grasping person, an open-handed person, the posture of receivers, everything is gift. And when all is gift... Gratitude follows. The reason we have such a difficult time with gratitude, that gratitude shrivels in our souls, is because we just expect stuff. We don't take this posture. Everything created by God, Paul says, is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received. Notice, received with thanksgiving. So dependence creates gratitude. And secondly, dependence creates contentment. Right? The, the petition is stripping us not only of self-sufficiency, it's trying to strip us of our covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? Grateful, content people do not worry. They do not clamor, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? We depend on our Heavenly Father who is good, who knows us, who loves us, who knows what we need even before we ask. Right? So godliness with contentment, Paul says, that's great gain. And then he goes on to say, and this is really important, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, I know we're worried about what we leave behind when we go, but with respect to any individual person, right? Jeff Bezos will die with the same amount of wealth that you die with. Zero. You brought nothing into the world. You're taking nothing out of the world. And Paul says, so if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That's the posture. The third thing I want to look at is the portion the portion. We pray here for God to give us today, today, our daily bread. And the word for daily bread either means something like today's bread or tomorrow's or perhaps future bread. So think of it. If you prayed this prayer in the morning, I mean, just just as a diagnostic question, right? Have you actually asked for your daily bread in any of the previous seven days? Right? Most of us probably just assumed it's there. We're not asking for it. But if you prayed it in the morning, it would mean you didn't have it for that day. You didn't, or, or we didn't presume it just has to be there. 
it would mean give us today's bread. If you prayed it in the evening, it would mean give us tomorrow's bread. In Luke, Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. So the point is, the time frame of the prayer is short. Like, we're not asking for enough to hoard or store indefinitely. We live moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour from the hand of God, and there's nothing better than that. We're asking for what our catechism also calls a competent portion of the world's goods. That is an appropriate amount, neither excessive nor deficient. And we leave it to the wisdom of God to determine what a competent portion is for each person. That doesn't mean you won't have extra. It just means God thinks that's your competent portion. So long before Jesus gave this petition, you might remember it's anticipated by this wonderful prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. Right? Where the author there says, give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me, you know, essentially only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you. Right? That's the temptation of the rich. Who is the Lord? I might just say, who is the Lord? Look at all this stuff I have. Or I may become poor, the text says, and steal and dishonor the name of God. I may covet habitually. It's bread that we're praying for, not dessert. Bread. And its daily nature teaches us that we're not to lust for more. The great 5th century Bishop of Constantinople, I've mentioned him a few times, John Chrysostom, he says here, he says, Note how even in things bodily, spiritual concerns abound. Turns out the petition is a little deeper than we, we might imagine. It is about bodily things, of course, but there's spiritual concern here. For it is not, Chrysostom continues, it is not for riches or frills that we pray. It is not for wastefulness or extravagant clothing that we pray, but only for bread. And only for bread on a daily basis, so that we are not worried about tomorrow. So even here, when we pray for these temporal goods, even goods like food, we need to be reminded of these larger concerns. We're part of a community, part of a body, and our prayers are never, ever merely about us. Remember, this is the our father, not the my father. And notice that, that plural corporate aspect is never left behind. It's not left behind here. Notice, give us today our daily bread. Us and our. So this prayer actually cements our solidarity with our brothers and sisters, especially our brothers and sisters in need. Right? From this petition alone, we could derive the idea of supporting our brothers and sisters in parts of the world where they have great physical needs. That's part of the reason God gives you an abundance as part of your competent portion, that we might share it with the needy. Any excess in our portion needs to be at the disposal of the needs of the community. Because we are not simply praying for my daily bread. But we're praying for others when we ask for this. Finally, the last thing here is the prospect. And by this I mean the future. The future. And here I want to rescue the fathers a little bit. I don't think they were not completely wrong to see the prayer as pointing to spiritual bread. Their error was to overlook this concrete, practical basis of the request. But it does point forward. 
There is, in speaking of daily bread or tomorrow's bread or future bread, a reminder, even in evoking here, and we saw this in the Old Testament lesson, of the manna from heaven, right, which God provides for Israel during her wilderness pilgrimage. And once one makes this connection, and the text is definitely making it, one is now lifted up and out into the whole theology, the whole theology of bread and feasting in Scripture. Because the manna was both daily bread for, for Israel, daily bread, and a type of Jesus Christ who identifies himself as that manna from heaven in John chapter 6. Right? The living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread for, shall live. The bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And thus daily bread does in fact direct us to heavenly bread. Right? The universe has a sort of sacramental quality to it. Right? It's a sacrament of God's glory and goodness. It, it, we enjoy it, and yet it, at the same time, it points beyond itself. So Calvin says here, Scripture regularly teaches us from the taste of present goods to hope for heavenly ones. Matthew makes this connection in this gospel, in this very same gospel. Right? Jesus feeds the 4,000, and then he feeds 5,000. It's, it's a provision of real bodily need. But in doing it, he uses the same verbs that are used later when he institutes the supper. In other words, he takes, he, the text says he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Matthew is explicitly connecting, feeding the masses with their daily bread to the gift of the body and blood of Christ given to us in the Eucharist. So all bread, all bread, all meals point to the supper, right? To the bread which endures to eternal life. Because all temporal gifts point us to Christ who is the gift of God. The ultimate bread of tomorrow. And so, with this apparently simple petition, we end up where we always end up, where the Bible ends up, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Right? At the wedding supper of the Lamb, reclining at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the saints of all the ages, with the us and the our with whom and for whom we have prayed for daily bread. We end up at the feast where daily bread is no longer fragile. It's no longer scarce. It's no longer subject to misuse or hoarding. It's no longer a matter of anxiety for us. The feast which has become everlasting communion, fullness of life. The feast where today or daily is the today of eternity. And the bread is a perpetual feeding on Christ the bread of heaven, the living bread, in light and in resurrection glory forever. Amen.